Warning, this review contains strong coarse language, some sex references and uh, drug references, but it also contains other things that may be triggering to some people. And now I'm going to commence with my 100th podcast episode. I can't fucking believe this! Woo! <laughs> All right. <clears throat> now on with the show. Hello, welcome to the Funky Collective. I'm so overjoyed because it's my 100th episode and my 99th episode was Superman the movie and I know the 100th episode, like, I'm going to be super long recording this so it might actually come out on Wednesday in Australia, but, like, who, who gives a shit anyway? You know, it's coming out on Tuesday in Bristol or whatever. But but still, I'm just... <laughs> I'm honoured that you guys have stuck by me for so long. Today, we will be reviewing Pulp Fiction. Where are my manners? Where are my manners? Yes, where... <laughs> finally going to cover the film Pulp Fiction, which is one of my favourite movies absolutely ever. Like, I love, love, love this movie. This is my eighth viewing of it, and I noticed details I still didn't notice before. The print on Stan really has subtitles that my Blu-ray actually doesn't, which is a bit weird because I finally noticed people saying background things. So because this is the 100th episode, this is going to be extra long, not to mention i got to do my video, uh... You know, I still got to film that and publish it Wednesday, so hell, how am I going to do that? <laughs> Let me know if I'm speaking too fast. I'm sorry if I am. But uh, honestly, I really just... I have loved Pulp Fiction. My 15-year-old heart could barely handle the excitement the first time I watched this masterpiece of a movie. It just ties in so, so well. If you've never seen Pulp Fiction, it's it's like three or four stories told out of order. And, you know, it stars Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, John Travolta, Uma Thurman. And it's more about the characters than the actual plot. The plot's sort of secondary, you know? The characters just interacting. It's not like those dazed and confused or before sunrise sort of films where it's just conversations. You know, typical Hollywood stuff sometimes does happen. But the film is really charming in its own way. And I really think that, you know, those of appropriate age who uh, have never seen it, really, really should. I saw it when I was 15. And, uh, well, then again, this comes from director Quentin Tarantino, who watched uh, a double bill of uh, Deliverance and The Wild Bunch when he was eight years old. I don't think I saw either of those, even now that I'm 18. <laughs> uh, yeah, but <coughs> he he mentions, you know, he knows when violence is pretend, and I kind of get that, but isn't eight still a little bit young for those movies? from all that I've heard, you know. But uh, anyway, um, this was made on a budget of $8 million. Bruce Willis, who was successful in the overseas box office, but not in America, was the reason the budget wasn't smaller. He worked on the film for 18 days. As it happens, he was a fan of Reservoir Dogs. Harvey Keitel knew this, so he convinced Bruce to come on board. And in fact, $5 million went exclusively to the cast. I mean, in lotto these days, in Australia, in the lottery, you can win occasionally, what, 30 million, 20 million? I mean, I guess you got to adjust for inflation. 8 million might be a bit close to 11, 12. You, you calculate. I'm not, a, I'm not a finance guy. Ask David Kosh. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, anyway, um, the biggest chunk of the money was uh, $150,000 that it was the set for Jack Rabbit Slim's The, the Blue-Looking Diner in the Middle. But anyway, you know, um, I'm going to let you know if I go into spoiler territory. I won't go into spoilers till later, but I'm just pointing out some basic facts. 
Quentin Tarantino hates product placement, so most of it is fake. I think they mentioned McDonald's at one point. Uh, the internet was used for advertising one of the first times this happened. You know, a lot of people think, hey, it was really the Blair Witch Project. But no, no, Pulp Fiction kind of used the internet one of the first times. There's no surfing references in this movie. There are plenty of surf music, but no surf references. Quentin loves surf music, and the music you hear in the films of his are actually from vinyl records. In the UK, limited edition matches were sold. Included on the back was, you play with matches, you get burned. Honestly, with this uh, with this pre-show information, I, I honestly feel like Bill Collins, and may God rest his soul, he is, he was, and still is, one of the best Australian film historians and critics ever. I implore you to check out Bill Collins if you haven't already. Uh, yeah. Uh, international viewers are probably confusing that a little with uh, Phil Collins. And uh, yeah, I can feel the confusion coming in the air tonight. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, you play with matches, you get burns. That's what the limited edition matches in the UK said. TriStar Pictures called it too demented, but Miramax, then on a high from such indie films like Clerks and stuff, loved it. They loved it. And yeah. Um, on set, John Travolta, Quentin Tarantino played the board game of Welcome Back, Cotter. This was because Quentin's a huge collector of vintage TV show-themed board games. Um, two of the three stories were written before Reservoir Dogs and True Romance. Those successes compelled him to write a third story. Each story initially was going to be directed by someone different. Plenty of actresses auditioned for Mia Wallace. Julie, Julia Louis-Dreyfus... Uh, Jennifer Aniston, she, the latter, narrowly, narrowly missed out on the opportunity to actually play Mia Wallace. So, yeah. And where is my music? I introduced that last episode. You're probably wondering where the hell it went. Well, hang on. Transition. Now for a bit of a crazy story. So, yeah, sorry if I'm talking too fast. You know, when I get excited, I talk as fast as the fucking Gilmore Girls. <laughs> and you know how much they talk. They, they talk like His Girl Friday or something. Um, so, yeah, at Cannes Film Festival, the film won the Golden Palm. And as Quentin was speaking, a foul-mouthed French woman protested, yelled, but Tarantino just sort of brushed her off and kind of, you know, uh went on to say he was surprised that he won and his films usually drive juries apart rather than unite them but yeah I think film does unite all of us not to be too preachy I've been kind of saying that whole message in all of my stuff you know but yeah so I am about to uh, go into spoiler territory but only only after I do the shout outs because I just love giving you guys shout outs I shout out like, if I, if I could, if I had enough time, I would shout out people who, who, you know, all inspired me if they gave me permission to tag them. But I really, really, really just think that shouting out at least a few people is a good thing because, you know, we get you started on connecting with fellow film buffs and I've seen it already. I've seen how people, I've seen how people really connect through my tags sometimes like you know I I just love people who support me and I love uh, okay I'm I'm talking too much I'm just trying to find my shout outs okay I'm gonna give shout outs to Tessie Cat Lucy Cool Zach Ascott Real Sharks Podcast aka Riri Shaku Cinematic This Podcast Film Mama Tick Marbella Unicorn and by the way uh by the way Harris thanks for recommending the 
I forget the name, but it was, I think it was a film in that Jet Li was playing an autistic guy, I think. Anyway, um, so other shout outs to uh, Fisher Films 82, Mary Amber, Caution Spoilers, KO Savage by Lee JM75, Autistic in Melbourne, Naked Airplane, Still Mellow, Contrera, Heavenly Imagined, Rose Begali, Larry1937, 2621, Talk Me Into, Films with Amy, Zeus, Schluck, Luster Video, Creative Fay, I'm Just Here for the Violence, I still love that bloody username, man. <laughs> um, Ashy Slashy, Classic Blonde. L Salt One and Eric Sluss1383. Enjoy! Alrighty then. Now that we're done with the shoutouts, we're going to go into full spoiler territory. I know that, uh, you know, unless you really don't care about getting films spoiled for yourself, I really recommend that you go watch the movie and then you come back for my thoughts and sort of kind of analysis deep dive sort of thing. But yeah, I know I may be talking too much, but come on, just. I don't know, I just want to make my 100th episode longer. It just doesn't feel sp- as special without it being extra length. So yeah, a little bit of padding if you'll forgive that. So really the first sound heard is Butcher's chopper that he steals from Zed once he kills him. Uh, so yeah, I did say spoilers, obviously. Uh, the first visual is criminals at breakfast, much like in Reservoir Dogs. The camera setup copies Bonnie and Clyde, although Bonnie and Clyde is in 185 to 1 and Pulp Fiction's in 239. What's in the briefcase is never specified, you know. Some think it's Marcellus Wallace's soul, and, you know, the, the theory works like this. The, ba- the back of the head's bandaged. It said the devil takes souls out from the back of people's heads, and the combination that opens it is 666. Tarantino himself said it's whatever the viewer wants it to be. By the way, anyone asking about the pronunciation of Tarantino, um, one person, one of my friends told me it might be Tarantino, but then I looked back at uh, a promotion that Quentin was doing and he pronounced it uh, Tarantino. So there we go. It is all good now. (laughs) That's that debate solved. So anyway, yeah, in reality, the prop used for the briefcase had a battery and a light bulb. All scenes with the briefcase are an homage to Once Upon a Time in America from 10 years earlier. Only eight people die in this movie, and two of them are only mentioned. Butch, Bruce Willis, kills the most people but does not get paid to murder. Huh, how ironic. So yeah, Marcellus and Mia are never seen speaking on screen, but they are seen together at the side of the pool at Marcellus' house, and people forget that, you know, I think it's during the Gold Watch segment where you get to see Marcellus in a back room in a just behind the ring or whatever and Mia and Vincent are there and also Marcellus is there they they still don't speak but many people tend to forget that little scene and uh you know Marcellus is is saying I want someone hiding in a bowl of rice um okay here's my one big big problem with this movie now I I love Pulp Fiction to death anyone who's known me for a while will know I absolutely love Pulp Fiction just love it uh, I've always had a problem with how, you know, they have white people saying racial slurs or anyone saying racial slurs. I mean, you, you know what I mean? Like uh, black people have their right to say the N word if they want to, but not white people. I just, it, it, that always like rubs me the wrong way. You know, I'll move past that quickly, but uh, yeah, you, you get what I mean. So yeah. And in the uh, in the initial sequence after the credits where Jules Winfield eats Brett's burger, interrogates him, that's a reference to the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
um, Samuel L. Jackson improvised flipping over the table. Vincent calling Butch Palooka in the bar after this scene is a nod to a comic character, Joe Palooka, a boxing champion in the heavyweight division. Also, it's like a 1950s insult for anyone appearing to be dumb or oafish. Butch asks what he said, and Vincent says, I think you heard me just fine, Punchy. Punchy is defined as a boxer whose fighting wounds are visible because they've been around for far too long. And also, Quentin said, you know, uh, off screen that uh, Butch keyed Vincent's car because of course, (laughs) I would have liked to see that fight scene. I mean, I guess they get their confrontation later. So I guess that sort of matches up where Butch uh, shoots Vincent to death in his uh, apartment. So yeah, you know, John Travolta wanted to know what it's like to use heroin because Vincent in the film is obviously an addict. Quentin Tarantino sent John Travolta to one of his recovering addict friends and he said, and I quote, the addict said, if you want to get to the bottom envelope feeling of that, get plastered on tequila and then lie down in a hot pool. Then you will have barely touched the feeling of what it might be like to be on heroin. Just to cover my ass, I'm just gonna say, don't do anything to do with drugs or alcohol. That's what I'm gonna say. Uh, so, you know, uh, apart from my little disclaimer there at the end, you know, Travolta talked about this to his wife. They both did it in a hot, t- in a hot tub. Did that. I'm sorry. <laughs> did it sounds kind of naughty. I know I warned sex references at the start, so I think I'm covered. Uh, yeah. Anyway, every time Vincent goes to the bathroom, something bad happens. His back can also very briefly be seen in the opening. One of the back doors, when Vincent goes into Mia's house for the first time, uh, it's open so that the camera wouldn't really reflect into it, you know? In in Mia's house, still, an inexpensive record player is used, showing that even though the Wallaces are rich, they're not pretentious, and that some good items do come cheap. And that's really the reality of a bargain. You can get, you have to check the discs, but you can get old titles at your Salvos or your Vinnies and stuff like that, and sometimes they look more scratched than they are, like planes, trains, and automobiles over there works fine. So anyway, yeah, before Mia and Vincent enter Jack Rabbit's limbs, she says an Elvis man should love this. This calls back to a deleted scene where Mia films Vincent and says everyone's an Elvis or a Beatles person. Vincent says he's an Elvis person, and to be honest, I think I'm an Elvis person too. Now don't get me wrong, I love me some Beatles, but you know, thank you, thank you very much. That was probably the worst Elvis impression you've ever heard. I didn't intend it to be accurate, okay? So yeah, I just, Elvis just has more songs that are just great. I mean, the Beatles are pretty great, okay? But you know, you have Viva Las Vegas from Elvis. You have his 70s output, you have Patch It Up. Anyway, I digress. Just how much I'm fanboying over bloody Elvis. I always thought someone should make another, like, epic biopic that hopefully was not conventional, and that covered, you know, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, you know. So anyway, um, in the bar, you know, people know Fox Force 5 describes Kill Bill, basically. And uh, during the dance scene in Jack Rabbit's Limbs, Uma Thurman did not like You Never Can Tell being played in the dance scene, but Quentin convinced her it'd be just right. She was also pretty nervous about dancing with the esteemed dancer John Travolta, but he just told her, and I quote directly from him, shut up and twist. The path back to Mia's house looks exactly like the one in It's a Wonderful Life. Another one of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life. If you've never seen that one, please, please do so. It's no longer public domain, but a copy probably just costs $10 or whatever. Just please watch it, even if it's not Christmas, and watch it in black and white, all right? So anyway, 
yeah um so there's a small almost unnoticeable reference to back to the future in lance's house the game operation is on top of the game of life now considering it's during the overdose scene where they have to find a needle that's pretty funny (laughs) in a way in a very twisted way i have a dark sense of humor did i ever mention that but it's also that way in the 1955 mcfly house in back to the future well lorraine mcfly's house anyway If you've seen Back to the Future, you will know what I mean. So Quentin Tarantino did not cast himself as Lance the drug dealer, but he played Jimmy later. The reason? He wanted to focus on directing the scene and seeing it unfurl. And I can understand that. When you're busy acting in the scene, you know, you you see you see the trees and not the forest, if you get my drift. You gotta see the forest sometimes, but you gotta see as as a director, you know, you gotta see the forest and the trees at the same time. And yeah, you get what I mean. Um, probably a bad metaphor, but hopefully you get what I mean. I mean, you've listened to my ramblings for 99 previous episodes. So here we go. <laughs> Pam Greer auditioned for Jodie, but Quentin thought that uh, he couldn't see her getting pushed around like Jodie does. She was later cast in Jackie Brown. Pam Greer did have a very successful audition, and I was planning on watching more of Pam Greer's movies, but the only one that I could see on streaming was called uh, Coffee, and I think that was from the early 70s. Yeah, it was okay. It was fun. Um, one of the uh, black exploitation films, that's a, that's a whole like B-movie genre for those who don't know. Basically, this was, this was after the civil rights movement, and uh, these were among the first films to have black people as heroes. And yeah. You can probably search it up a bit more. So anyway, I'm going to go back to Pulp Fiction so I don't go too off track. A Three Stooges short is playing on TV, but Tarantino couldn't get permission to use a short that wasn't in the public domain. The Three Stooges would be trademarked, but the short he used, Brideless Groom, is in the public domain. The Three Stooges, for the reasons listed before, do not appear on screen. So yeah, Mia overdosed on heroin due to a mix-up, obviously, but did you know that in real life? Now, this is where the drug warning comes in, and I, I, I'm just going to say it neutrally. I do not advocate drug use of any kind, alright? Alright? Just making sure. So, uh, drug dealers usually apparently have, like, balloons for heroin, but, you know, he says he's run out of balloons. Balloons are supposedly more easily swallowed by, uh, by drug people, hence x-ray machines, I guess. Lance, the drug dealer, calls the heroin a, a fucking madman, meaning powerful. Cocaine is an upper, and heroin is a downer, supposedly. And as Mia may not have used heroin before, she immediately overdoses. Having expected, she was snorting cocaine, you know. And you get what I mean. Sometimes I like to step in other people's shoes, almost vicariously. That's what movies are about, in, in, in some ways. Even, you know, characters doing things you wouldn't even do in your wildest dreams or nightmares. And you get to see a whole bunch of different experiences. And you get what I mean here. But yeah, the shot where they finally plunge the needle into Mia is actually backwards. You know, they uh, they had the needle on her chest and then they took it out. And then, you know, they reversed the film so that it looked like... Ah! Yeah, you say something. Something. <laughs> that was... That is still a great scene. Just the anxiety predates uncut gems, punch drunk love. That type of anxiety is all through that scene. Even if you've seen it before, you're still living in the moment. And this film's really about moments and, and conversations and just the small things in life. 
and the small philosophical things, the big things don't matter as much, the plot doesn't matter, there are a few big things, not quite even set pieces, small set pieces, and being a low-budget film, you couldn't have Independence Day or anything, you get what I mean still. How many times have you said, sorry, have I said, you get what I mean? <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Anyway, um, so yeah. Christopher Walken's character actually pauses, pauses during the speech he makes, but it was an accident. So he'd forgotten his lines, but bounced back quickly and the take was used. So yeah, here are some other notes. Um, in the, uh, in the opening scene, I, uh, read somewhere that, uh, the inspiration for the speed of the dialogue was His Girl Friday. And, uh, you know, the camera, the camera moves were inspired heavily from Bonnie and Clyde, as I said earlier. And, yeah. Um, you bet your ass I turned this film up loud. Like, things are louder at night. I didn't turn it loud enough to annoy any neighbours or anything, but, you know, I think that, uh, the cat got a bit scared when uh, a couple of gunshots rung out. I think during the Ezekiel 2517 scene in the apartment. So yeah, I uh, some of the dialogue, like when Jules explains pilots, sounds like he's been possessed by Quentin Tarantino, but in a good way. And yeah, you know, uh, the classic Mitchell, the two in the elevator that always gets panned and scanned on VHSs to one at a time, which is annoying. Um, center framing in the hallway in a doorway. Center framing's good, although networks think that's an excuse to justify cropping or zooming in the image or whatever. And yeah, I think throughout the film, I know I'm sort of backtracking over the plot here, but there's always small conflict between Jules and Vincent. Doesn't really come to a head until the Bonnie situation, really. And considering it's out of order, just, you know, rearrange things a little bit. Yeah, anyway. So, yeah. I think that uh, during the apartment scene with Brett, the fact that they close the door fully before it cuts, then we cut to the inside, um, it means that we're seeing something no one else has any right to see. Well, not any right to see, you get what I mean. Criminals keep things secret, obviously. And yeah, there's definitely, there should be more consequence to the gunshots in this film. They're loud. There's got to be some uh, civilian investigation. Check out the big brain on George. I'm a smart motherfucker. That's right. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just kind of taking off the film. <laughs> all good. All good. All right. So yeah, I like the rhyming dialogue. I like that the man on the couch is played by uh, Burst Ears, who directed Seventeen again, and that they have to keep retaking that scene when when his character is uh, shot on the couch because the gunshot was so loud, you know. And uh, yeah. One great piece of advice in the next bar scene with uh, Marcellus and Butch, you know, you see this business is filled to the brim with unrealistic motherfuckers. Motherfuckers who thought their ass would age like wine. And that red bar looks fantastic. I can't believe they held it on Bruce Willis for so long and so, for so still. And it's just, oh, that's probably not proper grammar, but you you definitely, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that... Uh, it's great that the small detail of him tugging, of Bruce Willis tugging on it before Marcellus lets it go, it's just a sort of great thing, sort of a begrudging relationship. He's the boss and ultimately he has to respect the guy to to take the fall, which he eventually doesn't. So next shot back of Marcellus' head is in the front of the shot, Butch is blurred. Cut to close up of Bruce Willis, he's framed a little bit to screen left, saying he has no problem with what Marcellus offers. 
But then Marcellus seems to take back the power with his voice, making Butch promise something. Samuel L. Jackson does that later. And the first time we really see Marcellus, it's like an it's like a an anticlimax. It's like in the Elephant Man when we first see John Hurt as as the main character properly. You know, it, it's just it's just there. It's not used as dramatically. It's just sort of more unassuming than in the the Elephant Man. So yeah, I also noticed a common editing technique is in fading to and from black, like in Gone with the Wind and quite a few old movies. So yeah, yeah, definitely. And also they mentioned the $5 shake. My local club has one for $6.50. I mean, that's when I attended it before coronavirus. The shake in their words was indeed pretty fucking good. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth $5, but <laughs> mine sold for $6.50. Anyway, so yeah, that's uh, the the that's when you found something really special moment uh, when Mia says about uh, comfortable silence. That's kind of true. I guess I'm the type of person who prefers music in the background or whatever. You guys may be the opposite. You guys may want quiet sometimes, and then you know if you want quiet right now, you wouldn't be listening to me because I'm as loud as a bullhorn. <laughs> I thought it's also quite funny, back to the overdose scene, that, uh, you know, Vincent like, Vincent's like, she's fucking dying on me, man. And uh, the, the Three Stooges thing is saying, just dandy. And I, I never caught that before. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> but yeah, um, plenty of close-ups at critical moments. And that's, it's great for the sparing use of close-ups. Like Butch hiding behind the brick wall from Marcellus trying to shoot at him, or, or close-ups of the needle and Mia's face and the other faces before they, before it plunges in, and of course the beautiful moment of bonding when Mia tells her Fox Force 5 joke. And I've also noticed another editing pattern in, in this film, recurring lengthy shots of people like Bruce Willis, Chris Walken. Uh, Chris is absolutely fantastic. He becomes quietly dramatic, the matter-of-fact comedic, and of course, that's when he's talking, you know the scene, if you've seen it, the gold watch up his ass. <laughs> Always makes me smile, at least. But yeah, I like that uh, I like that uh, sometimes there's even stuff like a shot panning, panning past uh, Vincent and Mia at the door in the back of the boxing ring. That's about where I left off. Hey, if the film can be out of order, why can't this be out of order? <laughs> it's not technically in order anyway. But yeah, we pan over to Paul and Marcellus. Some films would just cut, but I appreciate that it like panned over, like we were continuously just walking in the room, almost, almost voyeuristic, if you know what I mean. And yeah, there's definite rear projection during the scene where Esmeralda Villalobos asks Butch what it's like to kill a man. The scene seems to set up that Butch apologizes if the victim happened to be innocent like the rival boxer, but he would kill people if necessary because he discounts his emotion during the process Due to working for Marcellus. I apologize if there's any background noise there. I'm just gonna, uh, this takes nearly over anyway, and I'm gonna stitch another take on to continue this discussion. Alrighty, I just gotta check out this noise. I'll be right back after this commercial break. Da, da, da. And we're back from the ad break. This is Station FGC. In the room right now is my cat. And the cat's name is Zuzu. And uh, she was in my third video ever. You can go to YouTube and sort it by oldest or whatever. That's what I do for some channels. See what their first ever video was. And if you haven't already, please go see the Film Geek Collective YouTube channel ASAP. 
because, you know, I'm doing both the podcasts and the videos weekly, all for you guys, and thank you for supporting me again. So getting back into facts about Pulp Fiction and also some opinions. Uh, Roger, um, there's a fact that uh, Roger Avery contributed, sorry, contributed most to the Butch and Fabienne scenes. However, Miramax wanted to sell Quentin Tarantino as the uh, quote-unquote auteur, writer, director. And I don't think that was fair that Roger Avery was just thrown out of a writing credit. Um, you know, not sure exactly what happened there, but he certainly deserved it. He got sort of a, he got a co-story credit, I guess, but really, you know, this is a lower budget film. I thought executive meddling was almost non-existent. So anyway, um, one shot that I really, okay, I'm just going to go back to my other notes. So, uh, yeah, Christopher Walken's character forgot his lines and okay, so the insert shot of uh, Esmeralda's ID in the taxi is an homage to uh, Taxi Driver, where Travis Bickle's license is shown in much the same way of close-up. You know, um, the gimp scene was originally going to use My Sharona by the Knack. So uh, yeah, before I get into the gimp scene, I'm going to uh, I'm going to warn you, this concerns sexual assault. This scene, so if you were uh, if you don't if you have any issue with the this uh, issue, then uh, don't listen on because, you know, uh, yeah, I would put it at the start, but it's more of a spoiler, so I'm putting this warning in the spoiler section. So, three, two, one. So, the gimp scene was originally going to use My Sharona by the neck. One member of that band became a born-again Christian, and since it was a scene concerning rape, he did not want it used. Zed is the only authority in the film, a security guard. Did I mention Zed and Maynard were confirmed outside the movie to be brothers? So during the same scene as Butch is trying to find the weapon, there's like a Killian's red sign that only reads kill Ed due to some of the lights not working. Just before this, Butch picks up the keys that belong to Zed, which of course have a Zed. Kill Zed is what it is when you mash them together. The samurai sword he uses was used because among samurai, one to their master is considered paramount. Funny, CBS Viacom bought roughly half of Miramax films recently and Paramount now has distribution rights. Uh, yeah. There's a great long take after that where Bruce Willis is walking past the other houses, going to his apartment to uh, get his watch. Um, very faintly, you can hear, you know, uh, an ad for Jack Rabbit Slim's $5 shake. Sharp-eared listeners can probably hear more. Like, it's rumoured that you can hear... Uh, that uh, Mia and Vincent actually stole the trophy. So yeah, there's there's that. So yeah, uh, he walks out of the complex after shooting Vincent, and at the gate under the shelter, he turns into a shadow. A nice way of saying there's a whole underground the authorities don't seem to know about. The one authority in the film seems to be at least quite wounded, and it's implied Marcellus is going to torture him for raping him. So yeah, definitely. <coughs> um, Marcellus appearing walking across the road before this scene and looking at Butch is actually a direct reference to Psycho. That is before he's run over and the two cars crash. That's one of the few real set pieces and the chase afterward. But that's like a smaller set piece and that's okay. You need the smaller set pieces, particularly for smaller productions like this was. You don't get to the big leagues without the small productions. And yeah, of course, in this uh, in the pawn in the pawn shop scene, and I find it quite funny how he says, how uh, you know Maynard says nobody kills anybody in my place of business except for me or Zed. Comes true, doesn't it? <laughs> so yeah, some more character-based moments, some more story-based moments. The film really seems to balance that, but 
not quite balanced because I think the character moments just really, it tips into favor of the character moments rather than plot driven, if that really makes sense. So I think Marcellus only, uh, only moment of uh, true powerlessness is when he is in that basement. Like he's, he's always in control of where he's going, what he's doing, uh, where he's heading, always. He's the crime boss, but he's just, you know, you get what I mean. So the original intention with the, with the Bruce Willis punching the gimp is that uh, the punch did not kill him, but Quentin Tarantino confirmed that actually it, it ex- es- sorry, <clears throat> asphyxiated him and hung him on the chain. It doesn't quite play that way in the movie, Tarantino says, but apparently it was supposed to be that way. And yeah, there are about three or four mentions of authorities overall, if you were wondering. So yeah. The uh, Bonnie situation was originally going to be called Jules, Vincent, Jimmy and the Wolf. Jimmy's scenes, at least some of them, were directed by one of Quentin Tarantino's best friends and fellow filmmaker, Robert Rodriguez, who was uncredited. The whole Marvin situation would originally play out as Marvin accidentally being shot in the throat, dying slowly. But John Travolta, according to an interview with Marvin's actor, Phil Lamar, went up to Quentin Tarantino and said the headshot would be funnier because it's just a simple one-shot kill and... It'd make the character seem unlikable if the guy was sitting in the backseat bleeding to death or, or something like that, you know? Um, so yeah, Vic Vega in Reservoir Dogs is the brother of Vincent Vega. A spin-off film was to be made, but then they were both too old for the uh, for their parts, Michael Madsen and John Travolta. And damn, Mr. Blonde is scary in Reservoir Dogs. So yeah, of course, I like how it also kind of plays with memory, this film. In the beginning, how Honey Bunny shouts, "Any of you fucking pricks moving, I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you." But at the end, it changes to uh, perhaps because of different perspectives. And if you fucking pricks move, and I'll execute every one last one of you motherfuckers. Just roughly like that. I probably made a verbal typo there. <laughs> Can I coin verbal typo? Anyway, so yeah, I really do think that. Uh, this film has had a huge impact on me to, uh, and to finally be able to analyze it. But wait, I've got more notes. I've got more notes. So yeah, um, I like how in the uh, in Butch and Fabienne's uh, other apartment when they're running away, when Butch has just gone out of the pawn shop that uh, Marcellus was in because Marcellus wanted him to leave town forever and he steals Zed's chopper and stuff. I like that uh, Fabienne's reflections at the very left of the 4x3 television in the middle. Actually, no, that particular bit was before he went to the pawn shop. You get, you get what I mean now. So there's a great shot, though, when this is just before this is just before Bruce Willis kills John Travolta. He's walking through, a, through the apartment complex he lives in, and the camera pans up to show he now appears on the second floor balcony in the doorway before he walks across. Much like that moment during the drug overdose where you see a car pass the door in Lance's place in the doorway, you see the car pass, and you know, they go outside, no cuts, no cheats, and there's already a car there that just plowed into the house and the, and the front parts up and stuff. And yeah, they did it with two cars, which I find quite amazing, actually. I like how they did that. So yeah, anyway, I, uh, Oh, I think I already read that, didn't I? But yeah, okay. So Quentin Tarantino makes his cameo as Jimmy. Um, the uh, racial slur issue comes up, especially in this scene, when he says the N word about four times. But yeah, 
you know, I'd, I'd understand if I understand if it's Django Unchained. You know, those were times of of pure hatred and racism and stuff like that. But this type of thing, where you have white people saying the N word, just really did not sit right with me. You know, that's the only takeaway. This that's the only minus detraction, whatever that I have with this movie, really. Otherwise, it's really, really, really well structured, and everything else is absolutely five star material. And yeah, I think I was mentioning earlier how the com- the conflict between Jules and Vincent only really becomes serious in the Bonnie situation, but mostly after they blow Marvin's head off, but up until the restaurant scene where they calm down. And I noticed there's also a uh, a couple of handheld shots in this film used a la a Clockwork Orange, where you know sort of handheld but not shaky cam or anything or incomprehensible. Far from it. It's more like a 70s documentary style, maybe 60s if you're lucky, trying to find the shot during the overdose scene and the coffee shop being threatened. Um, in fact, you know, um, he's like, I'm just a coffee shop, and he's about to say manager, but he gets interrupted. So if you look in the end credits, he's credited <laughs> he's credited as a coffee shop. So yeah, and uh, of course, this is that same scene with more rhyming. You know, when Tim Roth says, if you don't unload that case, I'm going to unload in your fucking face. Um, Of course, with the gun that he's threatening Sam Jackson with. And I always noticed that during the Mexican standoff, most of the time, apart from when it's just uh, Jules saying to uh, Tim Roth about Ezekiel and finding a new life, that Honey Bunny is always in the background and that... uh, in more than a few occasions in this scene, Jules is seated right to left when holding the gun, something he now finds morally wrong because he doesn't want to kill him. I'm sure I've talked about left to right being the right way and right to left being the wrong way in my uh, Full Metal Jacket episode. So yeah, Jules stays mostly cool and keeps the power in the Mexican standoff. Vincent and Honey Bunny are the chaotic forces in this tug of war. Ultimately, it ends great because, hey, there's absolutely... You know, there's a bit of yelling and stuff and threatening and psychological uh, sort of violence going on. But there's no, I I can't recall any physical violence in this particular scene. Unless you can't maybe him dragging the guy, uh, the coffee shop guy or whatever. But you know what I mean. There's no punches, there's no kicks, no one gets shot, no one gets stabbed, no one gets eviscerated. Initially, a deleted scene was going to show Jules imagining that he shot the rubbers. And uh, then, like... Uh, one one innocent man also got shot and that ended up getting cut out of the movie uh, yeah much like the uh, whole Elvis Beatles thing that is, gets referenced in the final cut so yeah do deleted scenes it depends if deleted scenes happening in canon or not really I think in Pulp Fiction they do but the reason he avoided the Elvis Beatles thing in the theatrical cut Quentin um, is because uh, he Actually, he thought it was a cliche at that point to have someone using a video camera to record someone else, and so he just cut it out of the movie. But I'm pretty sure at least some deleted scenes are available on my Blu-ray or something like that. Probably just look on YouTube, they'll probably be there too. Now for this film, I keep coming back for the characters, I keep coming back for the writing, it won Best Original Screenplay for a reason. It is just sharp and, you know, uh normal topics that they're talking about there's definitely a loaded subtext in some of them like just a friendly relationship playful banter playful teasing knocking like uh, 
you know, when when they're talking about the foot massage at the beginning, Jules and Vincent uh, talking about foot massage if it's as bad as having as having sex with someone's wife, and you know they're arguing about it. But you know, um, stuff like when Vincent teases Jules about, hey, he needs a foot massage right now, and you know, I like I like how Quentin can joke about that. Of course, for those who don't know, Quentin Tarantino has. Well, it's been widely rumored and quite possibly true, but he has a uh, foot fetish, and uh, so it in most of his films you will see a close-up of a woman's bare feet. So yeah, um, most noticeable in this particular film when uh, when Mia's first introduced, literally feet first, when she comes out of the uh, of the microphone room that she's in, and just before the da- like you know just before they go to Jack Rabbit Slims. And, you know, this is pretty restrained compared to something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Kill Bill, but it's definitely there for you, you, for you to look out for. So there we go. Another day, another podcast, and the 100th episode is now recorded. And I, honestly, I just, uh, to make it this far is an honor. To examine every one of these films, to entertain you all, to entertain people left, right, and center, to enlighten, to... Well, I I keep telling you guys to innovate, to create, to inspire, to electrify, but this isn't the end yet because it's it's not only motivation for you guys, but it's motivation for me as well. It 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 really is. I think that part of me wants to speak like a motivational speaker, and part of me wants to really just apply the experience I have, but not too much experience. I'm young and there's still so much to go and there's so much of life I got to see and coronavirus has shut down every single fucking plan that you could ever conceive to let you go outside. And, you know, my examination of the film is finished, but I'm just going to use the rest of, I'm just going to use the rest of this time to vent a bit, but also to not quite vent because Look, I'm really proud of you guys. I'm really, like, I think that uh, coronavirus is a terrible, terrible thing and you guys are stuck inside, but I really hope that I'm keeping your spirits up with this podcast. I really hope that, you know, you're, you're getting some enjoyment out of this. I almost use this also as therapy. Like, I'm, I'm not saying about, I'm not saying about my issues or anything or, or I'm not treating it like a counsellor. But it's really therapy, it's really catharsis to talk about the thing I love, which is movies, and to talk about it to people, and to talk about it and have people enjoy what I have to say, and me, me enjoying all of what you have to say. You know, I often, I often check uh, quite a few of the Twitter pages that I shout out, definitely, and I like posts, I'm very interactive, I deliberately want to build a community, and that's made possible thanks to all of you guys. And I just could not be more grateful. Just, you don't realize. No, sorry, that sounds arrogant. I'm sorry. But, you know, uh, I really, I really am super, 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 super grateful for anyone. Sure, I may have an audience that's not quite in the, well, I do have an audience of about 100 on my first video, but I I may not have an audience of, of... thousands or whatever or whatever I'd like on YouTube that that stuff takes time but the fact that I am inspiring someone the fact that I am inspiring someone 
amazes me. The fact that I've been listened to in 12 countries according to Anchor. The fact that the fact that I can even be here recording, the fact that technology has advanced, the fact that movies are changing all the time, the fact that I'm putting my life's work, well, part of my life's work, but, you know, the fact I'm putting 110% into these. Okay, I'm starting to ramble on now, you know, I, anyway, but you get what I mean, okay? I really enjoy this, and I hope that the future holds many, many great things, not just for me, but for you, because you need that motivation. Now, to end with my, to end with my closing, if you want to inspire, create, innovate, or electrify, we need your voice, because you, not just you alone, but all of you, all of you, can change things for the better. Now go out there and inspire.